T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Friday, June 22nd. 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll speak with David Zerflu. David is the leader of Paralyzed Veterans of America, having just been elected to a second term as president of that organization. We're going to talk to him about what PVA is, what they do, and about their amazing PAVE program that's working to get people back to work. And then we're going to speak to a representative of the National Desert Storm Memorial Association the day after some big news was announced, that being that a space on the National Mall has been selected as a location of the National Gulf War Memorial. So we're going to talk about that and oh so much more on this Friday show. And we're started off by bringing in Jake Hughes, which makes things easier. Jake wasn't here yesterday and having to do 25 minutes talking about the headlines by myself. That's uh, it's not easy. Oh, come on. You know, you can talk about yourself for hours and hours. I don't I know why you didn't do that. about myself. I was talking by myself. Well, I don't it's know very why you need to talk about yourself. It's what you're good at. Yeah, there you go. Just do that. Well. Of course, yesterday, uh, Jake was uh, working from home, taking care of stuff, so we were in here and uh, talked about a lot of things, but as we head into the weekend, Jake, any plans for the uh, the Saturday and Sunday? Uh, not really. No. I, we kind of do and kind of don't. Uh, buddy of mine, we're hoping to meet up and uh, and you know reconnect after about a year. I stayed at his house for a week when I first moved down here. He uh, actually contacted me last night, uh, texted me about... Uh, a story that we're going to talk about here in just a minute because he is a retired senior chief petty officer in the United States Navy. And, well, there's some big news within the chief petty officer ranks yeah. uh, that's uh, that's taken place. But, yeah, this is one of those weekends. It's supposed to be horrible weather tomorrow, like thunderstorms and rain and all that stuff. So uh, I don't know if we have any plans really either. I mean, and we're getting close to 4th of July, so we got to got to uh you know figure out exactly what we're doing with that and maybe rest up on the way on the way to that holiday who knows but hope everybody has a good and safe weekend and if you have any plans uh, just make sure that they're good ones they're safe ones and that they don't create a toxic environment for everyone right that'd be uh, that'd be a bad thing to do yeah just ask former Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Stephen <laughs> Giordano. We talked about the Pon yesterday, uh, how he had taken leave amid an investigation into his allegedly creating a, uh, a toxic leadership environment or a toxic command environment. It's it's a very odd story. It's a, uh, a very strange story. It's one that's upset a lot of members of the Chief Petty Officer's mess. I got messages last night from quite a few of them who were saying like, yeah, I know you're going to be talking about this. I said, well, of course I am. We talked about it this morning uh, before this news came out, and we talked about it earlier in the week. And that news is that the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy has suddenly decided he's retiring. That's amid an ongoing investigation into, again, the creation of a toxic command environment Uh, The chief of naval operations uh, went on his Facebook page and released the following statement. 
I have accepted Master Chief Giordano's offer to step aside as the Mikpon effective immediately. I appreciate his recognition that the situation had become untenable. Now we need to move forward together as a Navy striving with all our energy to become a more lethal fighting force. America expects no less. Uh, and then Giordano wrote in a Facebook message, so he went out on Facebook too. My love for our Navy and our sailors is absolute. For that reason, I seek to avoid any distraction from the success of our sailors and our mission. I have informed the Chief of Naval Operations that I intend to step aside and submit my retirement request in order to allow the CNO, our CPO mess, and our sailors to continue to move forward with the initiatives we have begun. Um, of course, the initiatives that he's begun are part of what's in question here. Some of the people on his staff saying, we haven't done anything. He's been here for two years, and there really haven't been any uh, initiatives started by him. A lot of issues going on with him, Jake. I know you weren't here for the days we were discussing it, so just to catch you up, he appears to be the kind of person that was more uh, concerned with uh, what little benefits he got as being the Pond than doing the actual job of the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Uh, specific things that were highlighted by uh, members of his staff, several of them in separate interviews, so you know it wasn't just one person making this stuff up. Uh, that he was trying to get fine china from the Department of Defense for his house for when he hosts dinner parties, uh, like three-star admirals get, because the Mikpon is uh, essentially afforded the same uh, the same treatment as a three-star admiral, with some exceptions. He doesn't get his own chef. He doesn't get fine china. He's not allowed to fly. He doesn't get his own plane to fly around in. Uh, he wanted all of those things, though. So <laughs> he wanted the fine china. He told his people to get that done, uh, would complain about not being able to fly on his own plane like the three-star admirals do, uh, would also um, uh, try to get assigned one of the Navy's culinary specialists that's trained for you know, working at a house. There's not that many of them. I think I was reading the other day there's maybe like 30-plus of these uh, these chefs in the Navy. Speaking of which, we're going to have a White House chef joining us next week. That's going to be very interesting. Chef Rush, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, if you haven't, his arms are about as wide as your waist and yeah. in a muscular way. So we'll be talking to him. Uh, and uh, so the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy wanted his own cook, essentially. He wanted to not only get... Uh, the same respect afforded to a three-star admiral. He wanted everything that a three-star admiral gets to the point where that was apparently his main focus. And then within the uh, the command structure itself of the office of the Mikpon, apparently was prone to explosions and anger and eruptions and always uh, putting down people who put forth ideas when he was asking for help with coming up with solutions to problems. Any uh, recommendation people made was apparently met with scorn and ridicule and things like that. And I think the most interesting thing about this is I was, uh, and I was talking to some of my, uh, my buddies who, uh, of course, I wasn't, but there are many of my friends who are chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs. We were talking last night about the fact that, uh, like in Navy Times, they had interviews with people from prior commands of his, people from the chief's mess at prior commands of his, who said like, oh yeah, no, that's exactly who he is. Yeah, that's exactly who he is. The question is, how did he get into that position? This is like a Spencer Rapone thing. How <laughs> did he get accepted into West Point? And then with the Pond, how did he get put into the Navy's top enlisted leadership position if he had a reputation for that at those commands? And it makes me wonder, you know, when they're doing the interviewing for that, when they're talking to the different command master chiefs, it makes me wonder how much they talk to those who uh, have served alongside them 
on the enlisted side. I don't know what the process is for selecting a Mikpon. I know yeah. there is a process, but it seems like if they'd talked to enough people who worked with him, uh, they probably would have heard some of this stuff. Yeah, I have two things here. The first is that this guy obviously sounds like a dirtbag NCO. And what I mean by that is someone that's more concerned about their own career and their own uh well-being than that of their soldiers, or in this case, sailors, because I don't know how it is in the Navy, but in the NCO Corps, in the Army, you know, I'll always, they always put your soldiers first. You come last. So that guy seems weird. My second thing is I'm shocked that three-star admirals get their own chef in the Navy. Oh, yeah, no. So do three-star generals in the Army. uh, Three-star, two, like, all flag officers and general officers, they have drivers, they have aides. They have cook. Yeah, they get their own. Sh- you oh, didn't know that? No. Yeah, no. They have people who cook for them in their house. I think it's particularly the the cook thing comes in at like the three and four star level, and that's because they will have you know heads of state and leaders of other militaries coming to their house for uh, you know for meals and stuff like that. And it's just one of those things that they get. But yeah, there are uh, a lot of benefits that they get that uh, you, you might not know about. I guess I, I was around enough of them to know about all that stuff. But yeah, there are uh, you know different benefits at those different levels. Huh, I never knew that. Well, I didn't interact with any you know general level officers. So. Yeah, and that's that's probably why you know you don't see that stuff. Like I I saw that. Yeah, there are um, three star and then I believe it's three stars and four stars who get the uh, the chefs. But then pretty much all of them can get a driver if they want to, which will just be some sailor or soldier that drives them around doing whatever. Um, they all, of course, have their aides and all that stuff. Um, I ran into a, uh, a young officer who I knew from back in my days as a, a sea cadet. So we're talking 30-plus <laughs> years ago when I was growing up in Connecticut, who is uh, who is now a, uh, he's a lieutenant commander select in the Navy and is an admiral's aide. Like his job, he had this bag with him. He was like, oh, yeah, I got everything in here. I got Band-Aids. I got anything that the, <laughs> that the admiral could possibly want, he has in that bag. So it's uh, a different lifestyle. They're essentially executives and CEOs and stuff like that. And, of course, uh, when you get to a specific level, certain ones of them do have their own aircraft to fly around. Now, the MCPON, you could argue, is uh, when it comes to enlisted leadership. I mean, that's one of the most important things, uh, important positions in the Navy. This is not a a figurehead position that you just put someone in there like, oh, look at that guy. He looks good. We can put him on a poster. The MCPON's job is to be the intermediary between the officer community and the enlisted community, specifically uh, the senior enlisted, the chief's mess. He is uh, uh, someone who can get things done. And again, has the uh, authority, essentially, almost, of a three-star admiral and can bring up whatever questions. I mean, he is the guy. He answers to the CNO and nobody else. That's all there is to it. Chief of Naval Operations, the top officer, that's who the command uh, master chief of the Navy, essentially, is what he is, the MCPON. Uh, That's who he responds to and can get things done. Although, apparently, Giordano didn't do anything people are wondering like where was he when uh when ships were crashing into each other out in pacific fleet of course we remember that from last year uh, according to navy times in a report by mark Farum, after 17 sailors were lost at sea in those collisions apparently there were a lot of discussions about what led to this and there was a lot directly related to the leadership including enlisted leadership and during this entire time he was like nowhere to be found. So yeah, one of his former staff members 
said that uh, he was in River City during those events and during that time. River City is uh, a code for a condition on ships where you shut down communications to and from the ship. So essentially going dark. They were saying that essentially he, he just wasn't he wasn't communicating with anybody. He was like, well, you guys, you guys deal with this. It so, sounds like he was trying to cover himself and he didn't want to attach himself to anything that could be perceived as bad. Well, he, he, he didn't do anything bad. The thing is, as the MCPON, your job is to address the issues that happen and try to figure out what's going on and try to figure out a way around it. So here's what the staffer said to Navy Times. He has had no impactful voice or message for the mess at large, no marching orders, no direction. Yeah. And, of course, that person said it on the condition of anonymity because apparently this is the kind of guy who would uh, – uh, you know, basically seek revenge and reprisal against people. Quite a few people from the staff were fired by him. Uh, there, There's just a lot going on here. And what I've been hearing from uh, the chiefs, senior chiefs and master chiefs that I know that have reached out to me over this after seeing like, hey, did you see this story? Because I think they want it talked about. They are incredibly disappointed in the questions that will now arise about the chief's mess in general and I understand their concern, particularly when you're a member of that. But, you know, I think the way to look at it is to remember it from the outside perspective of that junior sailor, of a seaman, of a petty officer third class, second class, even a petty officer first class who's hoping to become a chief, that there have been issues within the chief's mess for a long time with people like this. It's just eventually one of them was going to get to the top position. And it seems that that finally happened. I knew command master chiefs, which essentially there's no place to, no place else to go. When you're a command master chief, it's either MCPON, and there's only one of those every two years, sometimes every four if the CNO extends them. There's no place to go. You're not in it to try and improve your career standing anymore. You are at terminal pay grade. You can't go any higher. There's no higher job than a command master chief. I guess you could be a fleet master chief or something like that. But again, there's only a couple of those. What You know. You would see people who were command master chiefs who apparently still thought it was their job to make everybody else look bad. Like, if I make this sailor look bad, that'll make me look good because I'm the one pointing out how bad it is instead of trying to fix it. I saw, I worked at commands where there were command master chiefs like that. Command master chiefs who thought that their job was to be the CO's lackey and to do the, the dirty work for the CO. That's not at all a command master chief's job. A command master chief's job is to be, again, the intermediary between the deck plate leadership and this, the officers and the commanding officer. But you would have the majority of my command master chiefs were great, but there were two or three in 13 years that it was just like, oh, my God, really? Yeah, and I think that's universal because when I think about the command sergeant majors that I knew, uh, a lot of them would do that, would would – the kind that would point out a deficiency just to make the look at the look at the see what I'm doing. I'm look pointing out I a deficiency exactly. Mm. But I remember the best command sergeant major I ever had was when I was in my rack, my first deployment, battalion command sergeant major. I was carrying a, a load of sodas out to the tank, and I dropped some of them. I hear this voice behind me, "Hey, young soldier, let me help you out with that." And I'm about to turn out and say, "No, thanks, dude, I got it." Yeah. And I turn around, and it's the command sergeant major. <laughs> yeah, and that, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, should I let the command sergeant major carry my sodas for me? Yeah, and, yeah you know, <laughs> hey, if he's willing to take them, you know, I the best one I ever had, and I'll give him the uh, I'll give him the shout out by name, Command Master Chief Jim Griffin down at Navy Recruiting District Jacksonville, who 
understood the job better than any command master chief I ever met. He was a former CB and treated everybody with respect, uh, was the disciplinarian when needed to be, but even when he was disciplining someone and something like that, was always trying to make sure that it was in a productive way. He didn't yell at people to yell at people. He actually very rarely raised his voice at all. If you saw him with an angry look on his face, that was enough. You were like, oh, man, CMC is upset at me, and that is not good. The The fact that he always, though, even when he was correcting a deficiency of some sort, always tried to do it in a positive and uplifting way. And I don't mean like coddling people like, oh, you, you poor baby. He would fix it, and he would do it quickly, and he would do it the right way, but he didn't try to make everybody feel like crap about it as well. Yeah. I had a one command sergeant major when I was in third ACR. I'm not going to say his name, but <laughs> because this this dude had spent his entire career in third ACR. I don't know how you managed to do that in the army, but whatever. And I remember we were unloading stuff in Iraq from the connexes, and we were doing what we weren't supposed to be doing. We were smoking right next to the connexes. And he came up and he said, you know, because he saw an E6 standing with or an E5 standing with some, you know, little enlisted. He said, you must be a dirtbag NCO, Sergeant. I bet you don't even know how to clear your weapon. I said, well, Roger, Sergeant Major. And I proceeded to clear my weapon the proper way. And he goes, stop right there, Sergeant. You're jacked up. Here, let me show you. Took my weapon and proceeded to add an additional step into the process just to make it look like he knew and I was wrong. <laughs> That's good stuff. That's, that really is. I can't think of any specific, trying to think of any specific examples of command master chiefs who uh, I, I saw things that, the, I mean, it was just a general uneasiness. Oh, I, the, one of them who was uh, very friendly with the local nationals at one of my overseas places, specifically while we were in Crete. I think he was actually, uh, I think he may have actually been from there or from Greece or something like that. Uh, I witnessed him yell at a sailor who tried to ask the person at the very small exchange. There was a very small Navy exchange, like a mini mart essentially was all that we had um, yelling at the sailor because the sailor asked the person, an in-uniform sailor, Asked the person at the register. They had forgotten their ID card. The worker, local national worker, asked to see the ID card. He said, I left it in my CAC reader at the computer. This is my lunch. I only have a couple minutes. Can you let me get through? The command master chief lit up that sailor in front of everybody that was standing there. And then moments after that, the next person in line was a local national who was not allowed to shop at that store. Went right through. The command master chief was literally talking to this person as they went through and asking him like how their day was going. Uh, apparently in the name of like building relations with the local national community. Yeah, local national community hated us uh, and always is going to uh, on the island of Crete. It was not a very friendly place to anyone, not just to the U.S. military, but to um, the mainland Greeks, to the uh, Brits and Scandinavians who went to Crete on, on their holiday. Uh, it was not a friendly place in general. And the command master chief, again, again, kept showing time and time again how the local nationals mattered more to him than his own sailors. The only time you ever heard from him was when he was doing something that was, uh, you know, punishing a sailor or anything like that. It was uh, it was shocking. Also, he uh, refused to come on my morning radio program. <laughs> I wanted to talk to him about <laughs> all sorts of stuff. The ultimate sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and, uh, and Scott Stapp. That was another one. And then we got a new command master chief who was fantastic. And that's the other thing. It's It's... It's temporary. I guess that's a good thing. Like, even if this Mikpon was the worst Mikpon of all time, which I can't say that with any degree of certainty, but he's certainly the first one to resign or retire unexpectedly. And let's be honest, it's a resignation. It's a retirement, but it's like, a, you know, I can't, I can't do this job anymore. 
his thing is, you know, the situation is just because it's better if I step aside. Uh, everybody else's thing seems to be, yeah, no, it's better if you step aside and it's because you created this situation. So, you know, it's it's an interesting, interesting thing that uh, I wonder what Master Chief Petty Officer Navy Hurt, former guest of the show, I wonder what he thinks about that, what the former CMCs are saying. Maybe I'll reach out to him and see if he's got any comment on it. Probably not, but you never know because they're kind of uh, they they kind of keep things uh, yeah they uh, seem close, to be an insular community close to the vest well especially at that level but when you're at that level also you're afforded the freedom that's the other thing that you look for I think in your senior enlisted leadership uh, when you're in the military there's nothing that can be done to them so they have the opportunity to use their voice how do they do it though again do they do it to to yell at uh, sergeant jake hughes for uh, not fixing some soldiers standing next to him for some perceived uh, imperfection or do they use it to use that as a teachable trainable moment and actually make things better or do they as you said create imaginary steps in a process to make it seem like they yeah. know more than everybody else it's uh, it's a uh, it's not easy. Not everybody's cut out for it. But the thing is, not everybody can be cut out for it, but a whole bunch of people can still seek it out. Yeah. And sometimes, say, I mean, this is apparently really the first time that it's happened, although I've heard things about previous Ponds uh, from people who knew them well uh, that are not the most flattering things that you'll ever hear. But this is the first time that it seems that someone who was in it for all the wrong reasons and wanted that job for all the wrong reasons actually got the job. And that's something that maybe the Navy can review how he got to that position and look at it and see if there were anything, uh, any things that were missed by them, anything that they should have caught. And again, looking at these Navy time stories and, and our beat is the veteran community, not so much the active duty military community. Navy times has all the great connections for that, as does military times, army times, Marine Corps times, all those uh, great publications. They have talked to people who worked with him on his staff at Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. And then prior to that, and again, everybody's saying the same thing. Like, yeah, he's no, he puts everybody down. Uh, if he doesn't agree with them, he'll shut people down. He will uh, seek reprisal against people. He is prone to outbursts and explosions and has quite a temper. Where was all this during the selection process when he was chosen <laughs> to lead the Chiefs mess? Which again, now you've just got... A whole bunch of the khaki mafia just really not happy at him. And I heard messages from, I don't know, six or seven people last night after the story broke where uh, they were telling me, like, I know you're going to talk about this, and I want you to to know this is how I feel. And I'm like, all right, dude, I, I got you. I understand how you feel. Then again, they're a little bit closer to it, so they have a different perspective on it where you know, they, they're looking at it from the perspective of the chief's mess, whereas I'm looking at it from the perspective of someone who had to deal with bad leadership at a few places uh, during my military career. And sometimes it can even cause things to go, uh, it can bring down the leadership overall when you have like a command master chief, for example, uh, and you have a great CO and a pretty good XO and a bad CMC. Guess what? Life ends up stinking for the enlisted community on that ship, even with a good CO, good XO. Uh, that CMC is is a linchpin for life for the enlisted sailor. Is it going to be good? Is it going to be horrible? It's up to that one person. And when you have someone who apparently was not doing a good job at the very top of that profession within the Navy, the top enlisted leadership position, that's no bueno, man. That's something that has to be dealt with. The investigation was looking into it. And I think based on all of the statements that have come out from his staff, he had to know, like, this investigation is not going to end up good for me. Also, 
if those things are accurate and true, which, again, based on the reporting that Navy Times did, the amount of people that they spoke to, it certainly seems more likely than not that there's at least something to, a significant something to these accusations. He would know it. He was the one doing it. I mean, if, if there's a whole bunch of emails of him seeking out fine china, a personal chef, and a private jet, uh, it's going to be pretty easy to have that and point to it and go like, there you go. There's all this stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a sad day. I mean, it's, it's a sad day in one way, and I think it's a good day in another. One, I've got to think that there's something to these allegations for the reasons I just outlined. So in that case, I think it's good that you no longer have someone with that outlook in that position because it is an important position. This is not just a figurehead position. This is someone who can get things done and who can make changes to the lives of the enlisted sailors and their families. So that's good, but it is sad that a position that up until now had been held in such high regard and high esteem, now there's going to be you know, an ability to question it because of the behaviors of one individual. Again, is he the first one to not be a perfect Mick Bond? Absolutely not. I've Again, I've heard things from people who worked for other ones. And uh, boy, I can tell you stories off air about things that they said happened. But this is the first case where it got to this level and institutionally uh, you know, has just got to uh, shake the chief's mess. And based on the message I was getting last night, that has certainly happened. Uh, and we'll we'll keep an eye on it and see what happens with the next McPon and how the Navy deals with that. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be more to this story, I'm sure. But it will quiet down because... Master Chief Petty Officer Navy Giordano has decided to retire amid an investigation of his command climate. You're listening to the Morning Briefing Friday edition. Coming up, David Zerflu, President of Paralyzed Veterans of America. Later on, the VFW is coming in with the National Desert Storm Memorial Association. A great Friday show before your weekend, and it's back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. It's your website. We're the place to go if you want veteran-focused news and information and even a little bit of entertainment here and there. Right now, we're talking about some very big things on the website, including these issues with TRICARE. Just a few months ago, people were told, hey, if you're a retiree or if you're already serving on active duty and you've planned to retire and use TRICARE the way that it's always been used, you're going to be able to do that. You're grandfathered in, but we're making changes for people who joined after January 2018. Well, now the Senate Armed Forces Committee is considering removing that exemption. So we've been talking to the VSOs about that, getting information, finding out what people can do to make their thoughts known on this issue whether they're for it or against it. And you can find out that and so much more at ConnectingVets.com and by following us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest was elected Paralyzed Veterans of America's national president at their 71st annual convention in May 2017, taking office just under a year ago, July 1st, 2017. Immediately prior to becoming president, he'd been the national senior vice president since May 2015. And before that, he was a member of the United States Air Force from 1987 to 1995, serving as a jet engine mechanic and crew chief in Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm. 
His name is David Zerflu, and he joins us now on The Morning Briefing. Good morning, David. How are you today? Good morning. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So let's talk just a little bit about your background first. As I mentioned, you were one of those airmen in the United States Air Force, jet engine mechanic and crew chief, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Tell us a little bit more about your service, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were serving in the Air Force. Um, I come from a military uh, background. My grandfather was in the Navy, father was Army, brother was Air Force. I uh, joined in 1987, like you said, from Tacoma, Washington. Um, I always had a passion to serve. Uh, I served in Arizona, upstate New York. I deployed for the Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, served in Misawa, and at the end of an exercise, um, we were celebrating with a group of friends we hadn't seen in a while. They some of them deployed to Thailand, some deployed in various theaters. Um, on the way back to base, the driver that was driving our vehicle uh, hit black ice, lost control of the vehicle, and launched me, and I broke my sixth on the vertebrae and shattered my left arm and broke my wrist. And that was the end of your military career? Is that essentially what happened? Not initially at first. Uh, for the first month, I couldn't move anything from the neck down, mm. and then things came back. I spent three years in a wheelchair. Uh, now I use orthotic leg braces on both legs and a cane to ambulate. At times, I do have to use a wheelchair uh, when my body breaks down. But in rehab for the first year, about six months is when I, they medically retired me, and uh, I knew that my life was going to change. I was in my bedside, and within that period, uh, paralyzed veterans came to my bedside, navigated me through what the VA was all about benefits-wise, told me about going back to school, getting a job, literally changed my life forever. When you've served eight years in the Air Force like you did, that's usually when you're at the point where you're deciding, like, oh, I'm going to do this for a career maybe. Am I going to retire? Is this the end? You're kind of at that, that tipping point when you're at eight years. Where were you at that point in your career, and what was it like having essentially the decision made for you by this this horrifying accident that you were involved in? Uh, funny enough, I'd been an aircraft maintenance guy for about seven years when I got hurt. But before that, I was thinking about cross-training into combat control. Hmm. I'd met a friend, and I uh, asked him what the long and short of it was, and he goes, you get to shoot cool weapons and blow stuff up. And I, was, <laughs> I was sold immediately. I was still young at the age of 25, 26, and... Uh, I was getting ready to, to deploy to Texas and eventually maybe Florida, and then my goal is to go to Halo School, and uh, but it didn't it didn't happen due to the accident. Mm. So. When it comes to transitioning into the veteran community, it can be difficult for people who are prepared for it. When it kind of comes as a, as a shock and a surprise like yours did, do you feel that that made it more difficult for you to transition out from the service with the fact that you were medically retired, despite the fact that you were actually looking to try out a new job in the Air Force and all that? Yeah, it, you feel like your life is cut short a little bit, I think. And uh, it's natural to have depression and doubt. And uh, I had a lot of guilt for leaving my, my fellow veterans. There's such a bond between veterans, any branch you're in, and not be able to go back to that environment uh, creates a tremendous sense of guilt. And that was probably the hardest thing to get over. We're speaking with David Zerflu, the president of Paralyzed Veterans of America. He was elected just over a year ago, took office just under a year ago. Tell me more about the role that PVA played for you personally. Before you were the president of PVA, you were obviously involved with the organization. And uh, when did you first come into touch with them? And what role did they play in your uh, your recovery, if not physically, then mentally? Um, it was early on in Seattle, Washington at the VA. I was in my first month, two months of uh, my rehab. They literally came to my bedside, explained what had happened to me, um, what, what the possibilities were for my life. And uh, without that help, Without that brotherhood, sisterhood that the PVA is, I have no idea what I would have done. You know, I don't know if I would have been in a deep depression. I don't know. But they were kind of a shining light that, that grabbed you. 
And when I learned more about the organization and they got me voc rehab training, they got me back into school. After I was done with that, after about three years, I wanted to get involved in this organization. I took a short venture. I tried a uh, snack bar business or in Japan uh, with some uh, Japanese folks I'd met when I was over there. Did that for three years, got out of that, came back in 2003, and I uh, went to the local chapter outside of Seattle and said, you did so much for me, it's time for me to give back, and that's how I got involved. And I started at the chapter level, worked my way up to chapter president, and then a national vice president by the name of Al Kovac talked to me, um, got me involved, said you should run for the national position. I thought about it. I did it. I, I campaigned basically the national directors. They voted me in in 2010. I was vice president. I was able to become senior vice president and then national president, and then I just won re-election in, in May, so I must have did something right, and they <laughs> liked me. So Seemed to be doing pretty yeah. well. When we speak about paralyzed veterans of America, and when we speak about paralyzed veterans in general, there are many of us who know people who have been disabled in that way, and I think initially there can be a difficulty in knowing, like, how am I supposed to interact with my friend that can lead to uh, some disconnect? Eventually, I think it's pretty easy to figure out, this is the same guy, same girl I always knew, they're just, you know, in a wheelchair now, or have their braces, or whatever way they need to get around, but... In the initial stages, how big is it to a paralyzed veteran like yourself to have a group like PVA who really understands exactly what you're going through and who knows that, hey, this is just a, this is just a serviceman or servicewoman who, who is dealing with this issue, but there's nothing you know wrong or different about them? To me, it's life-changing. Um, part of my, my injury, I had no idea what being paralyzed was or what, what PVA was, is about. And hopefully through this program, people can be enlightened and learn. You're literally, people come to your bedside that, A, know what you're going through, have empathy, and want to help. And I've met a lot of men and women at their lowest point, personally. And I've had the, the, the great opportunity to build them up, to show them that there is a life. There are opportunities. You can do something with your life, whatever level of disability you're at. And to see that light and to see them get it is an amazing thing. It absolutely must be. And we're speaking with a man who certainly knows. David Zerflu was elected Paralyzed Veterans of America's president, as he said, May 2017, just re-elected this year. So apparently doing a, uh, a pretty good job over there. Let me ask you about that job. What exactly does the president of Paralyzed Veterans of America do? And what are you overall responsible for within the organization? Um, it's probably tremendous pressure because um, I'm responsible for roughly 17,000 members. Uh, but currently, the VA, VA told us, and we're waiting to confirm the, the numbers this fall, uh, SCI centers and clinics and CBOX serve about 63,000 SCI mm -hmm. veterans. And uh, so even though we're 17,000 members, we're serving 63,000 wow. um, SCI veterans, paralyzed veterans. Plus, we're also serving MS veterans. We're serving ALS veterans. There's a great great responsibility with that, but I want to serve my, my fellow veteran and my members and we're trying to create programs through benefits, through education, through sports and recreation, through advocacy. We're doing everything we can with the limited resources to make uh, paralyzed veterans, veterans of the MSALS, better. With the recent conflicts over the last 17 years or so now, as hard as it is to wrap my head around that, have you seen an expansion of membership after you know uh, going all the way back to Vietnam, with the exception of uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield, which were rather shorter than most of the uh, uh, the conflicts surrounding them? Have you seen an increase in membership from those coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, and things like that? We probably we've had a short spike increase, probably nothing to the days of World War II and Vietnam, right? 
but uh, what we are seeing is category of veterans with TBI and PTSD. And I think they kind of fall through the cracks and nobody knows how to service their needs properly. Um, that's what, that's probably my mission and probably Veterans of America's mission right now is we want to figure out how to define who these veterans are and figure out how to help them. Let me ask you a question that's, uh, it may sound a little bit odd at first, but I think that, again, when you see someone in a wheelchair, you see someone with braces, there's an initial kind of reticence to say hello, even to reach out. Like, oh, I don't want them mm-hmm. to think that I'm staring at them or something like that. What does the average paralyzed individual or average paralyzed veteran, what do they need from society in general? Is there anything special specifically, or is it just to be treated like you would treat anybody else? Um, they want to be treated like anybody else, but they obviously need access and opportunity. That's probably the two greatest things, but access being the greatest opportunity. When you think of buildings, when you think of public arenas, whatever the, whatever the case may be, it's something as simple as a ramp. Uh, for my case, it's a, ra- a handrail. Is a great safety thing. If I have to go upstairs on my own, that that's a pretty scary thing. And yeah. I've done it when I've gone to Capitals games. I've been up on the nosebleeds, and I have to grab people's shoulders and sometimes strangers and say, I apologize, I need to grab on you to get to my seat. So um, accessibility is probably the greatest thing. And for the paralyzed veterans specifically, are there any needs you know, specific to veterans that don't apply in general to the uh, community, the paralyzed community otherwise? I'm sorry, could you say it again? Sorry. Are there any specific things, specific needs, specific things that apply to veterans that are paralyzed that might not apply to the non-veteran who's paralyzed, or is it basically just the same general uh, issues? Um, for the civilian counterparts, medically it's the same, but for the PTSD and TBI, it's a little different. Mm. Um, I think that's something we need to – I don't think we've really learned everything there is about that individual. Mm. So we need to be a little mm, – cognizant of how we're proceeding down that and uh and just be a little little um i'm trying to look for gracious i guess and trying to figure out what the needs are and not be so fast to react right we're speaking with david zerflu david is the president of paralyzed veterans of america heading into his second year in that elected position one thing that all veterans need including paralyzed veterans including disabled veterans including every veteran category is employment They need a way to be able to support themselves, a way to contribute to society. And there are some extra barriers for the paralyzed or disabled veteran out there. And that is why Paralyzed Veterans of America launched its Vocational Rehabilitation and Employment Program, Paving Access for Veterans Employment, or PAVE. David, tell me a little bit about that program and where the idea for it came from. Um, PAVE came about through a gentleman named... uh uh, Rich Brooks, who works for Agility, he was a retired colonel in the Army, and uh, General Dan Munchen. It was kind of their brainchild with PVA leadership 11 years ago on them. They said, how can we put disabled veterans to work? How can we get them back in the workforce? Probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was hard for a disabled veteran to find a job, whether you're paralyzed or not. Um, being paralyzed probably made it more difficult. But about 11 years ago, we, we started this initiative. Uh, we wanted to put a disabled veteran in a job every day. Uh, I'm glad to say that we put 5,000 uh, paralyzed veterans and disabled veterans in jobs. We've raised $4 million in that effort. Uh, we just finished up a golf tournament uh, Monday at Leesburg, Virginia, that we raised $277,000 that initiative. Uh, we have counselors spread throughout the country right now that are working with people that put them in jobs. We had two very successful um, uh, veterans come. One was uh, a female Marine, one a male Army a veteran 
he's actually going to work for us as a national service officer. Um, she was going to work in a, in a bakery of all things. Oh, that wow. was her passion. And, uh, we, the crowd and the sponsors got to see where their money was going and the opportunities that you're creating for veterans. We're hoping to do more down the road. Uh, but that's where, where we are. We know that just because you're paralyzed or disabled does not mean you don't have that ability to work. They want to work. We don't focus on disability. We focus on the ability. We don't care if you're a high quad or, or paraplegic or somebody's amputee. We're going to find you a job if you want it. When we talk about the PAVE program, which, uh, as I understand it, you now have eight offices nationwide, six of them co-located in VA medical centers, Tampa, Richmond, San Antonio, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Long Beach, California, plus offices in New York City and in Washington, D.C. Is this something that's only available to members of PVA, or is it available to uh, veterans in general? Who is the PAVE program aimed at? Um, we're trying to focus on paralyzed veterans and disabled veterans, but if a veteran comes through our doors, we won't turn them away. Mm. So So someone who's, uh, you know, fully abled is still going to be able to take part in that program. That's correct. Our mission is never to turn a veteran away. And that is certainly a great thing to hear because of course there are, you know, specific communities with specific needs, but the veteran community overall, it's all the same team. So to hear that PVA is uh, not turning anyone away from PAVE is really fantastic. This also, as I understand it, is available to caregivers and spouses. And we speak about caregivers with paralyzed veterans and spouses. These are people who are having to donate, uh, not donate, but having to, uh, you know, use a a tremendous amount of their time, a tremendous amount of their lives to assist the veteran. What does the PAVE program offer to them specifically? Um, We started this about five years ago. We we didn't, it was just an oversight, not realizing the need of, like you said, what what a huge role caregivers have. spouses play in a veteran's life and uh, they they want to work too they want to do something else too and uh, the spark came from this gal who was a spouse of a veteran and she had a, a really good knack at photography she had a really great skill at photography she wound up uh, pursuing it seriously went to school and now she has her own photography business wow and that is, uh, you know, an industry that there's always going to be a need for photographers there's always going to be weddings and babies yes. and all sorts of other things you need for that can you think of anything that's ever stuck out to you as a job that, you know, kind of impressed you or maybe even surprised you that a paralyzed or disabled veteran was able to step into? One of those things that really kind of shows that there is very little limit to what these veterans can accomplish. Um, I think I think we've had doctors, uh, physician assistants in, uh, in wheelchairs. Wow. Uh, that's an amazing thing. And then we've had people be air traffic controllers, um, position aircraft around the ground, pretty high-tech stuff. Uh, it's amazing that they can do it. So. It absolutely is. And it just goes to show you that, I mean, if you think about your job, every anyone who's listening right now sits and thinks about what they do for a living, would you still be able to do it if you were in a wheelchair or if you needed braces or if you were an amputee? The answer to probably 90, 95% of those people is going to be yes, particularly in this day and age. Do you think that the move towards more technology-oriented jobs in the general population is something that has benefited the paralyzed veterans as they look for work through the PAVE program? Uh, yes, I do. I think that uh, technology um, knocks down walls, knocks down hurdles. Uh, they focus more on someone's intellect and drive and ability to do something more than um, the traditional methods of schooling and physical uh, needs. 
When it comes to employment being such an issue and the PAVE program working to address this, specifically, as you said, for uh, paralyzed and disabled veterans, but also for veterans in general, what more do you think we as a nation, we as a veteran community, and and even you as the president of Paralyzed Veterans of America can be doing to help our veterans of all categories find the right career for them? I think just uh, expand your minds, expand your thinking. I think uh, recently there seemed to be a spark where companies now have said, hey, we can hire these people. These people want to work. They have skills. They have needs. And uh, that wasn't the case probably 10 years ago when we first started. And uh, But now I think we need to strike while the iron's hot. I think the employment sector's mind is expanding greatly and it's becoming more diverse. And we need just to keep pushing and driving that. What are the plans moving forward for Paralyzed Veterans of America, whether it's the PAVE program, if there are any changes coming to that, if there's something new coming down the road or something that you envision for your second year as president of the organization, what's coming up for you guys? I think we have to be flexible and be able to adapt on the fly. Mm. Uh, That's why I think things from in the past we got stuck in ruts because we weren't um, able to be flexible and adapt. I think adapt is probably the key key word. We know things are going to change. They're going to constantly evolve. And we need to be ready for that. That is certainly something that I think every organization needs to be uh, open to and needs to understand that, you know what, again, the best laid plans are only the best laid plans until you hit that first bump in the road. Well, we've been speaking to the president of Paralyzed Veterans of America, David Zerflu, Air Force veteran and heading into his second year as president of that organization. David, if people want to find out more about PVA, if people want to get involved with PVA, or if they're a paralyzed veteran themselves and, and we're looking for an organization like yours, granted, they probably have heard about you guys already, I would hope. But if not, how do people get in touch with the PVA staff? Um, the traditional is pva.org. But we're put in Paralyzed Veterans of America and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're on all the social media platforms. And do you guys have a presence at the VA hospitals? I know you said PVA was involved with you early on when you were in Washington State. Uh, is PVA still located at those facilities, or do they visit them often, or how does that typically uh, work? Uh, most chapters are in the 24 SCI centers that we have. Uh, next month, we're going to open up uh, the VA in Denver, uh, the the SCI Center there is going to open up in January, February timeframe. It will be the 25th SCI Center nationally. It will be the newest one. Uh, we have clinics across the country, but uh, our relationship with the VA goes back probably to World War II. Mm. Um, we actually do site visits where the VA wants us to come in and interview staff and check them and make sure that the care is being delivered to our members and our veterans as best as possible. And that relationship has been around for Dang near 70 years now. And uh, we do it every year. We visit every SCI clinic um, in the country. And uh, I think it's important. And uh, we love doing it. And we need to do it as long as we can. Well, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of Paralyzed Veterans as president of PVA, David Zerflu. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And our thanks to David Zerflu, the president of Paralyzed Veterans of America. And of course, Jonathan Kopanger joins me now in studio. And let's talk, Jonathan, about the PAVE program. That's the Paving Access for Veterans Employment. And that's what PVA has been offering, I mean, really for over a decade now. PAVE allows paralyzed and disabled veterans, it it helps them to get back into the workforce. And I think that's something that 
we don't think about too often. I think you assume if someone is a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, well, they're getting 100% disability for the rest of their life, so they don't need to worry about going to work. Well, one, a lot of them want to work, and two, that 100% disability and everything, that's not necessarily enough to cover life, particularly when you have medical costs that come along with being uh, afflicted by those conditions. And then just mental stimulation. I mean, who wants to just sit around at home all day? I kind of do. You do? I, I could, as long as I have my video games, <laughs> I could do. I have done it. I, but what I, if you couldn't use your your hands for the video for the controls? Yeah, that's a valid point there. And this is uh, it's something that you don't think about for those reasons. And then I think we also don't think about the fact that there are many jobs that a paralyzed veteran can do. Yeah. You wanted an example? How about this one right here, sitting in front of a <laughs> microphone and talking about veterans' issues? I mean, there are, I think, the vast majority of jobs, you may have it in your mind that someone, because they're in a wheelchair or they use leg braces, well, he can't do yeah. that job. With the exception of manual labor, maybe uh, factory work uh, on the assembly line, things like that, those are kind of the only things that that really aren't possible at this point but almost every other job works and but, but what you just said is kind of key not possible at this point yeah. if you put people in a situation they're going to figure out how to how to work something out i mean that's human nature oh yeah and just because someone is uh, let's say in a wheelchair uses uh leg braces like uh like david told us he has to uh, sometimes he's in a wheelchair when his body needs to be sometimes he has his braces like he was uh talking to us you have um still the ability to to be on like an assembly line yeah, you know absolutely. it's it there are very few jobs that are that physical that require uh you to you know have use of all four of your limbs for yeah. example uh, it's something that certainly i think goes unnoticed and there are you know it, it's a relatively small portion of the veteran community so one that might be easy to forget about, but certainly one that we can't forget about. Absolutely. Whether they were paralyzed like David in a car accident while on duty over in Japan or uh, someone who was uh, paralyzed after you know their, their MRAP flipped over in Afghanistan or whatever. These are people that certainly need... Uh, certainly need people looking out for them, people letting them know, hey, it's not over. Life's going to be different, but it's not over. And that is what Paralyzed Veterans of America is all about. You're listening to the Morning Briefing Friday edition. Coming up next, the VFW's in the house, and they've got the National Desert Storm Memorial Association with them to talk about some big news regarding that memorial. Stick around. We're back after this. So, Jonathan, of course, you are Ace VA reporter here at ConnectingBets.com. Of course, you're kind of only the, the only VA reporter, so it makes, <laughs> it, makes it easy to be Ace. Ace by default. Uh, what are you working on today? Today, I'm doing something that I this is I had no idea that the VA had this. Um, they have a transgender clinic. There's one transgender hmm. clinic, and I'm interviewing the doctor who runs this. Um, it's um, it sounds interesting to me, and and again, I worked at the VA. I had no idea that they had this, so I'm going to learn something today. There's a lot of things that the VA people don't know about. Of course, this is one that's probably going to be a little controversial with yeah. the audience out there. But what are you going to do? You got to well, you're just telling them that it exists, right? I'm going to smile and then not look at the comments. <laughs> there you go. That's that's the best way to approach social media. So that is going to be coming up on ConnectingVets.com today. Also, check out the story we put up yesterday: DraftKings, fantasy daily fantasy sports giant. Used to bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars by people betting on fantasy football. They're placing a big bet on veterans and their spouses. Free tech training coming your way from DraftKings. So check out that and more. ConnectingVets.com is the website. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You're listening to the Morning Briefing Friday edition. Coming up next, the VFW is in the house, and they've got the National Desert Storm Memorial Association with them to talk about some big news regarding that memorial. Stick around. We're back after this. 
helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Friday edition, June 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com. Well, my friend, that's your website. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms. Video, yeah, we got that. Articles, bunch of them every day. Audio, you're listening to this, so don't ask stupid questions, all right? You know that we've got audio going out there, and each and every product that we create is aimed at helping the veteran audience find out things that they need to know, that they should know, that we think they'd want to know, and we know because we are all veterans ourselves. Each and every member of the Connecting Vets team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and just as importantly, knows what it's like to have taken it off for the last time. So go check us out at ConnectingVets.com. And we're also on social media where we are at ConnectingVets.com. Every Friday, we are joined by an organization that I'm proud to be a member of, in full disclosure. That is the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And today, we have Joe Davis from the VFW in studio with us once again. And he's brought along a friend. That friend is Heino Klink, retired U.S. Army, who's here on behalf of the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association. Joe, Heino, good morning, and thank you so much for being here today. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Eric. Appreciate the opportunity. Heino, we already know everything we need to know about Joe. I mean, everyone who's met him within five minutes knows everything. They've heard the whole story of who Joe Davis is, but Heino Klink, I don't know everything about Heino Klink, so let's just talk uh, briefly about your time in the Army. As I mentioned, you retired. I didn't mention, but you were a colonel uh, when you took off that uniform for the last time. Give us the brief cliff notes of your time in the United States Army. Sure. Uh, I retired about two years ago, as you said, as a colonel after 27 years of active duty. Uh, I entered the Army as a second lieutenant in armor, and I would tell you, you know, one of the foundational moments in both my military career as well as in my life was serving during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm as a tank platoon leader in the 1st Armored Division. And, of course, our producer, Jake, was a tanker at one point in his Army career. He did, like, three different jobs in the Army. Seeing you guys talk about that was great. Uh, hearing you guys from down the hall, the, what? What? <laughs> I right. was a tanker, too. What? Yeah, all the noise there. So, of course, at one point, uh, 27 years comes to an end. You have to take off that uniform and move into the civilian world, the big, scary civilian world. What do you remember about that time in your life? Well, you know, if you do anything for a period of time approaching three decades, you know, transition is going to be tough. Mm. And I would counsel anyone who's getting out of the military to take, um, to, you know, do their due diligence about what opportunities lay out, out there for them in the private sector um, and try to find something that they're passionate about. Now, I started my career as a tanker, but I ended it as what's called a foreign area officer. So I spent a lot of time overseas. I was a military attache in China. My last position was uh, Director of International Affairs for the Army and the Pentagon. So uh, I wanted to use some of those um, experiences and expertise in the private sector. So now I work in the international business arena, um, which is interesting, which is fun. But I will tell you, when you spend your entire adult life in uniform, mm. um, I viewed that not as a job. I viewed it as a career and as a passion. And after about a year or so out of the military and working for a, you know, a big company, um, I knew I was missing something. 
And that's why I uh, joined the National Desert War Memorial Association in a leadership role as its vice president to help its efforts because I was, again, trying to fill that void that was a mission, a passion that goes beyond just a bottom line. So I'm very proud to be part of that association. When you do almost 30 years in uniform, there's also an issue that we've talked to many people about with uh, bringing a little bit too much of the military with you into your civilian life. And it can be difficult for some of our senior leaders, whether we're talking about a colonel, a general, an admiral, uh, a, a, a sergeant major, a master chief petty officer, where they expect the world to operate the way it did for those previous 30 years. Was that something you had to deal with or something that you would have a recommendation for how people might be able to deal with the fact that, hey, you were once that full bird colonel. Now you're just Hino or Mr. Clink. No, it's a, that, that's a very good point. Um, I would tell you one of the skills that we're, we're, we all learn in the military is to be adaptive, uh, is to be flexible, and you have to do that if you want to succeed. Um, if you, you know, when you take the uniform off, you take the uniform off. Now, employers, frankly, are looking for some of those attributes that former military bring to the table. Um, but you know, just like you said, you know, I'm not a colonel anymore. I'm 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 Hino, uh, and although. Um, my the company that I work for, you know, probably hired me for, in part at least on my some of the things I did in the military, some of that expertise and experience. Um, you know, you, you can't walk into a new job uh, thinking people are going to salute you based on your previous rank. No, mm. you, you know, you need to be adaptive to you know to the to the culture that you're entering. And I will tell you, the culture is in fact different. It absolutely is. And and one recommendation that I've heard people make, in fact, a colonel in the United States Marine Corps told me once off air, if you can ever tell anyone who was a full bird in the military, if you're ever that guy who demands that civilians call you colonel after you've retired, you need to make a change in your life immediately. Right. I said, all right, sir, understood. So, of course, Heino Klink is here representing the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association. Something that uh, I think there are a lot of people out there who would assume there's already a memorial to Desert Storm in our nation's capital. Of course, that's not the case, but we've got some good news on that. So, Heino, first, let's talk about how you came to be part of the association and why this is something that's so important to you on a personal level. Certainly. Uh, so, as I mentioned, you know, my very first assignment in the Army, I was a brand new second lieutenant and I was a tank platoon leader in Germany. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, and frankly, uh, I thought things were, you know, the wall had just come down, the Soviet Union was falling apart. We thought that uh, we were going to have a nice European vacation, in essence. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and a couple months later, we deployed, my unit deployed, uh, amongst many others, uh, from Germany to Saudi Arabia uh, as part of Operation Desert Shield. Um, so for me, again, it was a, a, a foundational moment in my, my life because, you know, again, I was in my early 20s, just out of college, uh, and now I'm leading soldiers in combat. Uh, and I think it made me into the person that I am today. It made me into the man I am today. And quite frankly, obviously, it, um, it uh, shaped my, my views towards leadership and also towards international relations, quite frankly, mm -hmm. uh, because it was, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was, from a diplomatic perspective, a, a seminal event in history. You know, we had 34 countries that united to, uh, you know, push Saddam Hussein out of a country, Kuwait. Um, you know, when is the last time that we had that many countries unite to, to actually implement United Nations resolutions? Think about it, even Arab League resolutions. Yeah. So, uh, so many people have, quite frankly, forgotten about that. 
And a couple years ago after I retired, when I was approached uh, by the president of the association, Scott Stump, um, about joining the team, I was proud to do so. When it comes to this memorial, we're now 27 years removed or so from Operation Desert Storm's beginning. Uh, I believe it was in the fall of 91, wasn't it? The invasion was was in the fall, uh, and, excuse me, the fall of 1990. Fall of 90. And okay. then August, yep. August 7th was when we had deployed forces over there. August 7th was the deployment of yep. forces over, and then August I want to say... when Saddam came across the border. And I think it was November. I want to say shortly before Thanksgiving, maybe, when Desert Storm actually uh, began. Desert Storm started in January. Uh, was it January? Was it January? Midnight, you were. Okay. See, my, uh, my, my brain is recalling and hearing it on the radio as we were driving around, but in 1991, yeah. I was, yeah, it was only... January 17th or January 16th, depending on which side. I was only 12 years old, so you know, I guess my, my recollections <laughs> of what happened 26 years ago, not all that good. 26, 27 years ago, that's a long time. Yes. Why is it that there is, to this date, still no Desert Storm War Memorial in our nation's capital? What was the delay in getting to the point where we are now? I'm going to say, you know, just on my side, it took somebody to have the initiative and the uh, wherewithal to push it through. I mean, you know, Scott Stump was the one who came up with the idea. And basically, then it took a team to put it together. And then you have the, all these hurdles to put anything on uh, the ground here in Washington, D.C. Yeah. You got the Fine Arts Commission, you got the Capital Planning Commission, you got the National Park Service, if you want it on the National Mall. And you, so you had a lot of traps, but it basically took, uh, it took one man with an idea to push it through. And it got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, kudos go to Scott on that one. And there are a lot of difficulties, Hino, when it comes to putting something in Washington, D.C. One of them is space. I mean, when you go over to the National Mall, there's not a lot of open space to put new things there. But as I saw reported yesterday, it looks like they have now chosen a space that is acceptable and that will be used for the Desert Storm War Memorial. So what can you tell us about the location that's been chosen? Yeah, well, I will tell you yesterday was a big win, not just for the association, not just for veterans, but for the nation as a whole. Uh, Yesterday... um, uh, it was a decision was made to give us um, the our preferred site for the memorial, which is the 23rd Street Northwest and Constitution Avenue Northwest. So, in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, um, you know, within walking distance of the Vietnam Memorial. And again, I will tell you, you know, th- that the connection between the Vietnam War and Desert Shield and Desert Storm is something that really needs to be emphasized because. Our nation welcomed the veterans of Desert Storm home as heroes. That's not, unfortunately, what happened after Vietnam. And I will tell you, the, the lessons learned during Vietnam afforded us the opportunity to have such a decisive victory in the Gulf in 1991. So, you know, and, and moreover, as I stated, you know, the diplomatic significance of the war um, is also underscored by the location of 23rd and Constitution Avenue because it's, it's in the, the shadow of the State Department it's in the shadow of the Institute of Peace, and these are all basically connections to uh, what has made this particular conflict very, very unique in U.S. and in world history. So yesterday, we had the uh, Commission of Fine Arts agree with the recommendation of the National Park Service and the National Capital Planning Commission to give us the site at 23rd Street Northwest and Constitution Avenue Northwest. So uh, it's a big deal. It absolutely is, and we're speaking with Heino Klink from the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association, as well as Joe Davis, Communications Director for the Veterans of Foreign Wars. A big deal and something that had big support from the VFW, among other organizations. How important was it to have such a, a revered organization like the VFW on the side of your association in this process, I know? 
Well, it, it was, you could say it's a prerequisite, quite frankly. You know, an organization such as the VFW that represents uh, millions of U.S. veterans uh, to have that voice with us. And frankly, also financial support. The VFW has committed uh, $500,000 uh, to this effort. Uh, you know, we could not have done it without the support of the VFW, without uh, the support of other veterans organizations, without support, bipartisan support on the Hill, as well as an army of volunteers. You have to remember the association is staffed by volunteers. People you know, don't get paid. Uh, they're doing this because they think this is the right thing to do for our veterans and for our country. Joe, why was the VFW so interested and so invested in being a part of this? Uh, it's very easy. I mean, the VFW is many things to many people. But uh, one thing we are all about is about recognition. And it's taken a long, long time for this. And, but it's, you know, it's properly recon- recognizing those who walk into, go into harm's way, many of whom don't come back. I mean, we still have two, have two MIAs from uh, Desert Storm. Uh, it's, 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 you know, overwater losses and we may never find them. But the thing is just to, you have to remember, because if you don't remember, you forget. And that's why we need these memorials. You know, not, we're not memorializing war. We're memorializing those folks who voluntarily raise their right hands when the majority of Americans don't just to say, thank you. Heino, when it comes to the difficulties and the time that it's taken, you talked about some of the uh, the bureaucratic issues that you run into. Do you think part of it also has to do with the fact that it was such a short conflict uh, overall? There were 700,000 Americans boots on the ground over there uh, compared to, let's say, OIF and OEF. That's, that's, Three million. that's nothing. I mean, you're not talking about uh, significant numbers. When people think about, you know, I've heard people actually say, did we actually have anybody killed during Desert Storm? I thought it was like one guy. The coalition had 290. 92 killed, 147 by enemy action, 145 non-hostile deaths. Do you think the perception of Gulf War One is this kind of overwhelming U.S. victory that only took a couple of days? Do you think that that played a let part me, in the let delay? Let me jump into this one right here. People need to understand the historical historicalness of that war. You know, Iraq was the fourth largest standing army. Oh, yeah. They had just finished fighting a nine-year war with their neighbor Iran. They had already shown how cruel they were by gassing their own people. Yep, the Kurds uh, we were prepared north. for a long fight to be able to, to uh, unite this huge coalition, international coalition, to fight a common common enemy was it, it was amazing. But who knew? Nobody knew then that it was only going to take six weeks in the air and a hundred hours on the ground to to bring them bring them to their knees. Right. It was a resounding success. And you know, you flash. And you know, the thing is now because of the Vietnam generation, and that's the tie why we had to have this location. Is because. Everybody who led, all of our leaders in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, were all Vietnam vets. Mm. And in Vietnam vets, that's where they learned how not to fight the next war. So that's the connection with the wall. Right. Now, I would echo Joe's comments. He's absolutely right. I, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. And I can guarantee you that uh, the, prior to the deployment and during the deployment, uh, no one estimated that uh, the war would be so short. Yeah. But I would tell you, uh, if you're going to fight a war, that's the way to do it. Yep. Have very clear objectives and and then give the military the, the resources to uh, accomplish those objectives. We did that. Um, and again, when you talk about the international component of this, you, you know, 34 nations, you know, we had 600 plus thousand U.S. troops deployed. There were over 245,000 foreign troops deployed as well. Um, so again, very significant. Hasn't happened since World War II and hasn't happened... Uh, you know, after World War II either. Now, one of the reasons I think that uh, 
the Desert Shield and Desert Storm perhaps has not resonated that much with your average American is because after uh, the terror attacks of 2001, our country has been focused on Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, and other operations, and rightfully so. So, our, when, you know, when you have troops in contact, as we say, you know, that becomes a focal point. That being said, these things are not mutually exclusive. You know, let's remember how many years it took to build a National World War II memorial on the mall as well. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think what's key here is that the agencies that govern where memorials and monuments and things go on the National Mall have united in a joint decision to give us, again, 23rd and Constitution to truly uh, uh, memorialize the service of those men and women from that particular conflict in our nation's history. And I think it's important to note that you can never say, oh, there were only 292 killed. Think about that. That's 300 individuals. And those Americans who gave their lives over there, they're no less dead than those who gave their lives in anywhere from, uh, you know, Bastogne to, to Baghdad. I mean, there are uh, the people need to put that in perspective that, yes, it was an efficient, short war, which, as you said, that's the way to do it if you can. But this still cost American lives. And there were many wounded there as well. Uh, you know, it, it was not this easy, like, all right, we just went in, did what we wanted to and got out. There were lives lost and this this was a war. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think, quite frankly, it's disrespectful to uh, try to qualify um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine service based on casualties. Yeah, and I've seen a little bit too much of that lately going on from various generations talking about, oh, you know, I've even seen some in the Vietnam generation saying, oh, combat in Afghanistan and Iraq, that's nothing like Vietnam. Look at how many we lost in a single day over there. And really, are the, are the people who were wounded or killed in uh, Vietnam or, or France or uh, going back to World War One, the Civil War, are the people who were killed and wounded any more killed or wounded just because they were in that conflict, which you seem to think was better because it was worse. I mean, it's it's a very odd discussion to have. But we're focusing on some positive news here, and that is that a space, a location has been chosen for the National Desert Storm Memorial. That's why we are speaking to Hino Clink from the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association and Joe Davis from the VFW. We have the location. What's the next step? When is this actually going to be something that I can go and visit in our nation's capital? So I will tell you, although yesterday was a big victory and we're all elated about this news, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So, uh, and to be perfectly blunt, uh, now, you know, we have to raise some money because this is, this memorial will not be built using taxpayer dollars. This is all based on donations. And just as we um, depended on a very diverse team to get us across the finish line with respect to site location, we are dependent on a on a big team effort to get us, uh, uh, you know, the funding required to do this. And I, you know, would respectfully ask uh, that anybody who can support us uh, financially go to our website at www.ndswm.org uh, and make a donation that they feel comfortable making. So what we are looking for now is uh, support financially. To make this happen and i will tell you we're also going international with those requests because again very unique conflict in our history that it was 34 nations so uh our our efforts at fundraising will not be limited just to the united states we're going to go to our allies and friends and partners who were part of that because the memorial is also meant to commemorate their service and sacrifice 
It's we, pretty it's pretty incredible when you go down the list of the allies uh, from the coalition that were involved in Desert Storm. Syria, for example, which uh, kids these days who know what they know about Syria might find it hard to believe that at one point Bashar al-Assad was fighting alongside the United States. It was amazing. It, it, Syria, it was the, really. The Egyptians on our side. It was, you know, obviously uh, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia yep. forces. It was just, it was... It, it was the greatest kumbaya moment you could ever possibly think of. And it was also in, in the end days of the Soviet Union as they were uh, uh, finishing uh, things up on their uh, <laughs> their little organization over uh, you there. You know, we all had hope that, you know, after the end of that, you know, there would be no more wars. Obviously, that's... It hadn't worked out that way. way. Yeah, It but didn't work out. No, way, but they supported it. I mean, this was the first conflict the United States was involved in where the Soviets were like, duh, comrade, go do what you need to well, do. This, so. this is the only time in history where the Soviet Union supported the use of force in the United Nations. Yeah, which is uh, a pretty incredible thing. And there's a lot of things that people don't know about Gulf War One, about Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I think we know more about it than we did about some previous conflicts because you know CNN was there when we came onto the beaches in Iraq with the uh, essentially the uh, the red herring uh, Marine yep. Corps amphibious invasion while the army was getting ready well, to come know. in. We were talking about it outside. You know, it proved the uh, U.S. Expeditionary Force concept. Oh yeah. Plus, you know, you had all of our our uh, our GPS guided uh, weapons to your smart munitions. And uh, just the interoperability of all of our comms and uh, the aircraft and the naval maneuvers, the ground guys. I mean, it was perfect. I mean, you know, the left hook, everything yeah. just worked to perfection right there. It was kind of also the the end of what I would call the old school of warfare and the beginning of truly modern warfare. But that old school warfare was still there. We had battleships off the coast mm -hmm. lobbing those man-sized shells into Iraq. And then they would, of course, be all be mothballed after that. And you had the, the, the World War II era weaponry of a battleship being used at the same time as these guided missiles with a camera on them where you could actually see the security guard looking up and going, uh-oh. This isn't going to be good. So at really a fascinating period of time and one that I think you're right, I know, has been kind of overshadowed by OEF and OIF, two conflicts that have raged on for much longer, have had a much greater loss of life. Uh, you know, there are many reasons why it's been overshadowed by those. How important is it to you to make sure that people don't forget those Americans who gave their lives over there and not just them, but those who sacrificed, you know, time with their families, sacrificed everything that you sacrifice whenever you deploy to a war zone. Well, it's critical. Um, we can never forget the sacrifices made by our servicemen and servicewomen and their families. You know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was, uh, you know, the first major conflict of an all-volunteer force. Again, you know, if you juxtapose that conflict with the Vietnam War, it was truly a societal sh shift in the United States and a good one. Mm. I mean— you know, I was proud while I was still in the Army to have people stop me, you know, on the metro here in Washington or what have you and thank me for my service. I felt, you know, quite frankly, somewhat uncomfortable because, you know, I'm a volunteer. Uh, I'm doing this because I like doing this. I viewed it as a privilege. But still, you know, I was humbled by that. That didn't happen with our Vietnam veterans. You no. know, it's, it's a stain on our society, I believe, that our veterans from Vietnam were treated so poorly. You know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, again— was a pivotal moment in how our society viewed our military that continues to this day that our, our Afghan and our Iraqi war veterans uh, are being treated better, not only by the society, but by the government as well. And I would you know, imagine you know, Joe's efforts at VFW uh, have also been aided by how you know, our society has viewed service in the military. 
And of course, you, many people will recall the song Voices That Care, where every pop star of the day was out there singing about the those serving over in uh, Iraq during Desert Storm, and Desert, Steel, Desert Storm and Desert Shield. You didn't have anything like that. You had quite the opposite coming out of the musical community back in the Vietnam era. Well, we have been speaking with Heino Klink of the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association and our old friend Joe Davis from the VFW. And I mean old friend as friend for a while. Not, you that, you're, not that you're old, Joe. Come on. I, I already saw the look in your eyes as soon as I said it. <laughs> Of course, uh, Heino, if people want to find out more about the association, as you said, there's still fundraising efforts going on for the memorial. If they want to find out more information and keep track of where this is going, where do they go to do so? So uh, they can go to our website at www.ndswm.org. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well. And um, I would just like to highlight that we are a nonprofit organization. Any type of support that's given uh, is tax deductible. Um, we, again, would be grateful for whatever help uh, your average American, your your American vet, whether it was from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, or other conflicts, uh, would be able to make. Because, again, although we had a significant victory yesterday, we still have a lot of work to do to build this thing. Absolutely. And Joe Davis, if people want to find out more about the veterans of Forum Wars who have been a big supporter of this memorial, where do they go? Very simple, vfw.org. Well, we want to thank Heino Klink and Joe Davis for joining us, as well as David Zerflut, president of Paralyzed Veterans of America. You can check them out, pva.org. All right, this has been the Friday edition of the Morning Briefing. We will be back on Monday. Until then, have a great and safe weekend so that you can listen to more amazing veteran news and information next week. Take care. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.